welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. At this time of year, it can be very tempting to set big goals for the year ahead. We've all heard the saying, new year, new me. We tell ourselves that this year is going to be different. This is the year that I take better care of myself. I get back to the gym. I invest time in my relationships. I have a better work-life balance and the list goes on and on. And as you will learn from today's guest, the warm and wise Dr. Rebecca Ray, this all-or-nothing approach to change is a recipe for self-sabotage and disappointment. Rebecca is a clinical psychologist and author that shares practical ways to help individuals live a life that is fulfilled, unapologetic, and free. In her latest book, Small Habits for a Big Life, Release the Self-Sabotaging Behavior that is Holding You Back One Habit at a Time, Rebecca explains how you can override the part of your brain that seeks pleasure and comfort and activate the parts that can tolerate some discomfort for the sake of long-term goals. In this episode, we discuss what is self-sabotage and why do we do it? How starting small can create lasting change? The dangers of setting unrealistic goals and expecting perfection and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Ray. Beck, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, Meg. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about your book, Small Habits for a Big Life, Release the Self-Sabotaging Behavior that is Holding You Back One Habit of a Time. Just seeing this book made my heart sing because it gives us permission that we can change and it doesn't have to be big. So why do you think it's so important to talk about this topic? I think that we live in a culture of extremes. I think socially and I think culturally we are conditioned to aim for bigger, better, perfect. And I just, I'm not sure how helpful that is really when it comes to just being human, especially when we're talking about the habits of our day that are lifelong habits, you know? So so often, particularly in Western society, we're, we're looking at achievement and accomplishment as markers of our worthiness. Not accurate, by the way, listeners. I'm not saying they are markers. I'm saying that we're conditioned to think they are. So the more we achieve, then apparently the more worthy we are. Not true. But when you've grown up in a society that tells you that, it can be very tempting to only look at goals that can be ticked off as a scale that you measure the validity of your life by. Now that becomes a bit of a problem when you are looking at changing habits that have perhaps become habits of self-sabotage and you want to turn them into habits that are self-supporting. Now, most often we're talking about habits that are then lifelong and that's really disappointing if you've come from the Western kind of way of looking at things where 
we aim to go extreme for a certain period of time and then all of a sudden we've reached the finish line and we've done it. So often we're actually talking about tiny behavior change on a daily basis and that's just not as sexy as climbing Mount Everest, you know? It's just not as sexy as losing 20 kilos and then you're fixed. And so that's why I wanted to write this book because the habits that count are the ones that we actually do every single day. And the research tells us that between 40 to 45% of all our behavior is by habit. So about half of everything we do on a daily basis is done by habit. If those habits are not designed to support you, then how on earth are you going to get to where you want to go? Now, I don't say that as a goal or an end to the goal. What I mean by that is how do you actually then measure that you're living in alignment with your values unless you're actually aligning those habitual behaviors with who you want to be? That really deeply resonates with me, Beck. I think of a time years ago when I was getting back into running and so I thought, oh, I'll do a 10-kilometer race. So I did, I wouldn't say race, run, jog, (laughs) just get through 10 gays. And once I got through 10 gays, like, right, okay, now I'm going to do a half marathon. Once I trained for that, I did that. Afterwards, I had a really long period where I just didn't want to run because I didn't have that external motivator. But now I run as a part of my life. I run to be fit. I run to clear my head. I run to be a present parent, to be able to be an engaged educator. And it feels really different because as you said, there's no finish line. It's a part of who I am now. And that's a very different state of thinking and behaviors. Absolutely. And kind of reminds me of my brother. So my brother took up stand-up paddleboarding And within six months, he decided that he was going to do something with stand-up paddleboarding and raise money for charity. And that thing was to cross Bass Strait. For listeners that don't know, that's the body of water between the mainland of Australia and the state of Tasmania, which is off the eastern coast of Australia down the bottom. There's a body of water that's actually very dangerous in between um, Tasmania and Australia. And he decided that he was going to be the first person to cross Bass Strait on a stand-up paddleboard. Now, there's a lot going on with that decision. But what happened was he trained so incredibly hard over the course of about 12 months. And then he had to make two attempts. So the first attempt failed for, it was too cold. It was, the weather conditions were just horrendous. And then he went back six months later and tried again and he succeeded. In doing so, the amount of training that he had to do, and it took him five days paddling around eight to 12 hours each day. So we're talking about across ocean water he ended up damaging his shoulder so badly that he hasn't been able to stand up paddleboard again. If you look at that as a microcosm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that external motivator that you had with your 10K run and then your half marathon. There's nothing wrong with my brother deciding that he wants to cross Bass Strait on a stand-up paddleboard. It's okay if you want to do something major and test yourself. You want to test the limits. And that's actually what my brother wanted to do. He said, I actually want to go and see what happens to my mind. I want to go and see what my body is capable of. Great. I still look at the footage of him. I can just see the pain he's in to get that done. And yet it's not that process 
that's going to get you walking your dog each day. (laughs) You know, it's not that process. It's not the external motivator of seeing what you're capable of that's actually going to change you deciding that you are actually going to feed yourself breakfast each day. They're the small things that actually count for the quality of our life. Yes, achievement and accomplishment do actually, the research shows us they are a feature of well-being. The positive psychology research tells us that it's actually really important to have some form of sense of engagement in life and feeling like you're accomplishing something in order to have life satisfaction. But if we're talking about, you know, just sliding into habits that are habits of self-sabotage that you want to change, it's not deciding to do it at an really extreme level that's going to change that. Yes, and I love what you're bringing to this conversation is about the practical element. What we're talking about is the small habits that over time create a big life because we're doing things differently. We're not slipping into these unconscious habits of doing things that do self-sabotage where we want to go. They may have helped us in a time or a period, but they're not helping us be the person that we want to become. So what is a habit? That's a really good question. Look, a habit is something that you've done often enough that you can then end up doing without really thinking about it. So it's a behavior that you don't need to put too much conscious effort into because you've done it so many times now that you have an automatic routine and neural pathways in your brain that exist to support that routine so that you make a decision to do the habit and then while you're doing the habit, you actually don't think too much about it. So when we have these automatic pathways, I'm guessing that some of them can be really helpful and get us to where we want to go. And some of them can keep us stuck and not so helpful. Yeah. I have a a habit of posting on Instagram and responding to comments. Part of my business. It's part of my connection with my audience. It's how I keep a finger on the pulse of what my people need and checking in on them daily to be able to have some kind of interaction. That habit has been on my to do list for since I've had an Instagram profile 2015. I think I started my Instagram and I do it automatically now because it's just part of what I do. However, if there's a break, so I took a break of posting after I had my son, Bennett. I took like a month off. It was actually really hard to remember to post after that because I interrupted the process. And so coming back to posting on Instagram was something I had to remind myself to do because I got out of the habit of it. Now, if we're talking about habits that are actually part of your health, or they're part of what you want to do to make sure that you're living creatively or that you're focusing on your personal growth at least some of the time, then it's about being able to prompt yourself to do these things so that you can then say, I am living in alignment with my values because each of these little habits supports who I want to be and the life that I'm trying to create Because the life that you're trying to create is happening today. If we get to 80, if we're lucky enough to get to the age of 80 and we look back, what you're looking back on is how did you live? What was your day made up of? And are you happy with that? That is such a powerful question to really think about that the choices we make today are informing who we become tomorrow. And there's so much 
excitement and possibility in that to think that my choices do make a difference. So when it comes to habits and change, what do you think are some common myths that hold us back? Look, I think it's part of that Western culture thinking, which is unless I go hard, then I may as well go home. So if I want to get my health on track, I'm going to wait. First of all, I have to wait for an important date. That's the first myth. So I've got to wait until Monday or I've got to wait until the first of the month or I've got to wait until the first of January. And then I need to, if I'm going to change my health, I may as well decide to take vitamins, overhaul my uh, diet. In fact, I might go on some kind of extreme keto, celery, I don't know, like some kind of extreme diet. And then I'm also going to exercise seven days a week and I'm going to make sure that I drink four liters of water a day. And I'm going to do all that. I'm going to start it on Monday or the 1st of January. And if I don't get it perfect, the minute I drink three liters instead of four liters, or I forgot to take my vitamins, I've ruined it and I may as well give up. So what happens is we get this extreme seesawing of you'll do it for three days and then you'll burn out because you're just asking way too much of your brain to change all these things at once. And then you beat up on yourself and you start to criticize yourself for failing in air quotes for listeners, because it's not what you think it should be. But unfortunately, you've asked too much of your brain in the first place, which means you haven't failed. You just don't necessarily have the level of willpower that you need to be able to change so many things at once. And most of the time we're doing so in the context of the rest of our lives, right? So you've got kids and you've got work and you've got to clean the house and you've got to feed everyone else. There's all these other demands on you and you've got to change your life within that. It's not like you're J-Lo and you've got your own chef, or maybe you are, and you've got your own chef and your own personal trainer and your own stylist and you've got a team around you to support you being J-Lo. Most of us don't have that. Most of us are just trying to pay our bills while also making sure that we walk the dog each day. Now, if you ask too much of your brain to change too many things at once, it's just too much. And it is so true, Beck. The amount of teachers that I work with that week one, they think this is going to be different. This term, I'm going to be different. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to create time with friends outside of work. I'm going to leave work on time. They have all this enthusiasm and excitement week one, and by week two, it's a bit wobbly. Week three, it's a bit of a distant memory. Week four, back to predictable habits. And then by week 10, they've just got through, they've survived, and it's this really traditional boom and bust cycle. And the interesting thing about working in education is you get this two weeks. So the two-week holidays is just enough time to recover from surviving the last few weeks, to probably get sick. Some people get sick for those first few weeks. And then we have just enough time to get delusional enough to think this term is going to be different. And then the cycle repeats itself. And that's why it's so important to have this conversation, to think about that all or nothing thinking and potentially that perfectionism that we see a lot in education, how it can creep into the way that we care for ourselves. If it's not 20 minutes, perfect meditation on a cushion, it's nothing or if it's not a 45-minute F45 workout or it's not good enough and moving beyond that towards something is better than nothing. And as you say, starting small and building up on that. I love that you've pointed out the cycle for teachers. When I was in clinical practice, the most stressed workers I worked with were emergency services. 
Uh, so I did a lot of work with police, nurses, and educators. And I think it's really important that we talk about this element of it because I love that teachers, most teachers before they burn out, have a really beautiful engagement with their job. They're there to shape the next generation. And that hope of this term will be different is often about what they want to be for their kids you know, what they want to be for the people that are soaking up their knowledge. And I think that is so beautiful. Like there is so much meaning behind that. And I have an extra element of appreciation now that I'm a parent, you know, and to see just how the life of my child is changed and shaped by his educators. He starts school next year, but his educators at daycare have been so incredibly important so far that they've already been significant people in his life. So we don't want to take away the hope. We don't want to take away the spark of what I'm doing is meaningful. But unfortunately, what teachers do is they have to perform that role in the context of the education system. Now, whether it be the private or public education system, the level of demand on teachers during the school day and then outside of that to be able to keep up with simply just all the mental load and the practical load before they even get the teaching done is significant. So I think it's really important that rather than suggest that teachers show up to term one and do it differently, which is most often what they'll be telling themselves, because they don't, who wants to get to week 10 burnt out and feeling like you hate your job and not sure whether you're coming back for term two, right? That's no one wants to be in that place. And yet I have seen so many teachers in survival mode like that. They end up in fight flight mode because there's really only one way of coping when the demands on you exceed what you have to give. So instead, what I want teachers to be thinking about is okay, I have giving tanks and my giving tanks have resources in them that need to be distributed. And those resources go to my job, to my kids, as in my, my students, to admin, to planning and to marking and all those types of demands that a teacher has to do on a daily basis. But also I must have resources in my tanks to give to myself, to give to my family, to give to my friends to be able to run a household because we all know that life admin in and of itself is a lot. I just got another reminder from my dentist. I was like, <laughs> dude, didn't I see you the other day? Like how did six months go past already? Like this is too much. How many times do I need to make an appointment to go do something? But there's a lot, right? So I want teachers to think about you have giving tanks. How can we make some tiny adjustments so that you get access to what's in your giving tanks? just as much, if not more, as what everyone else gets from you. I think that's so beautiful for educators to think about. You've got X amount of energy, X amount of resources. How can you put aside a part of that for you? Because automatically we just give everything we've got to others. And so how can we start to think about ourselves and what we need? For an educator listening and they're thinking, yes, this year, I want to create a little bit more time for myself or space for myself to create a new habit that's going to sustain me throughout the whole year 
it doesn't matter if it's week one or week 10. This is a lifestyle change that I'm working towards. Where would they start? It depends on what you need. So it depends on what does your body need and what does your mind need? So you might need a glass of water. I don't know. I don't, you might need to spend 60 seconds focusing on your breath because what happens when we're in fight flight mode all the time is you can end up breathing so much faster and shallower than you really should be breathing. So most uh, human beings breathe around 10 to 12 breaths a minute. When people get anxious, they can be breathing upwards of 30 breaths a minute. So maybe you need to stop for 60 seconds and just slow your breathing down. Maybe you need to give up the pressure to read books and convert to audiobooks. That's a conversion I've made this year as someone who previously used to think, oh, but it's not real reading if I'm listening to it. Rubbish. I've read so much more this year as a result of just allowing it to be in audio form. And now I'm one of these audiobook listeners that has all sorts of standards about the narrator. And I'll get to the end. I'll be like, oh, no, like, no, that narrator should have been different. <laughs> but it's not about me deciding what you need, what listeners need to change. Instead, what I would encourage you to do is think about what could be one ingredient that could be added to your day? Actually, let me change the word added because sometimes it's not even an addition because often we feel like if one more thing is, is added to the plate, we're going to topple over. Instead, think about an incorporation. So for example, I listen to audiobooks while I'm cleaning the house. It's not an addition. I would be cleaning the house anyway, but the incorporation of audiobooks means that I get some time out. There's a moment where I'm indulging in reading fiction that is not going to change my life, but it allows me to actually have these moments to myself. Maybe it's five minutes of meditation. I don't know what it is for you, but what I do know is the thing that you think is indulgent is probably the thing you need a little more of. That is such a good flag. Well, so so often we think, oh, no, this person needs that for me or, oh, no, I've got to pay that bill um, so I can't go and book in a facial or I've got to go and do these things instead. I don't think there's ever going to be an end to your life to-do list, unfortunately. I, I wish there was. I wish we could kind of occasionally step out of our lives to just have a hiatus for a moment. But instead of waiting for your to-do list to be empty, why don't you actually look at why the indulgent thing feels like an indulgence? Because I'm betting that it feels that way because it actually helps to relax you. And you, you've gone so far now that you forget what it's like to be relaxed. You forget what it's like to be able to connect with joy. Now, so often we look at things and go, well, it's just fun. So I'm not going to do that because I should be being productive. Rubbish. You know, it seems like an indulgence because you've become so disconnected from experiencing something light because the load is so heavy. That is so true. The things that bring us peace, joy, connection can feel almost intolerable because it feels like an indulgence. And when you've been conditioned to be productive all the time and serving others all the time, there's some resistance there. And I loved in your book how you spoke so beautifully about resistance and it's a normal part of the change process. No one gets through change without resistance. Unfortunately. 
the end of that sentence is unfortunately they don't not even me i'm a psychologist i wrote the book right so i'm the first to rally against anything that requires effort including writing books by the way i have lots of resistance around actually getting the words down on paper but human beings are wired to do what's easiest and for most of us that means that self-sabotage is actually fairly addictive because it works. And the reason it works is because it relieves some element of discomfort in the present moment. So we go for short-term relief rather than the long-term gain of being able to align with our values. And so you can't really expect your brain to be on board immediately if you're saying, look, maybe you don't need to watch another season. We often do is go, oh, just watch one more episode or watch one more season because it feels good right now and it's somewhere else for me to go. But is it actually stopping you from doing the thing that you want to do that is actually going to give you some peace or some joy or some long-term gain? Because the thing that we don't talk about enough is aligning with your values and doing the thing that's actually harder in the present moment gives you a bigger kick of dopamine in the long term. So if you get up and you think, oh my goodness, I'm just too tired. I'll just sleep for an extra hour instead of getting up and walking the dog. Sure, it does feel comfortable to stay in bed. But if you actually force yourself to go through that discomfort and put your shoes on and go walk the dog at six o'clock in the morning, the dopamine hit that you get from doing that, from being out in nature, from doing, living your life the way you want to say you lived your life is actually so much stronger. And we only have to do that for a few weeks, maybe even a few months before it becomes habit and before we start to receive the major benefits of values alignment. That's what we don't talk about enough. You know, the more aligned you are with who you want to be, the easier life becomes and the more satisfied you become with your life. And it's interesting to note that as we become more satisfied with our choices, we become almost more respectful of ourselves. Like we have a higher respect for ourselves because we can say, oh, I'm making this happen. I'm doing this. I've been working with someone this year and it was interesting just recently she was talking about, Meg, I feel so much more satisfied with myself. I feel like I can respect myself and my choices now because I'm moving towards a future that lights me up instead of feeling like I'm trapped and there's no options. And so that satisfaction in the long term gives us such a buzz and in the moment, it's so tempting to go for that one more episode. Thank you. I could not have said that any better. And it's such an important point because I do think that what self-sabotage does is it, it erodes our trust in ourselves. And that does mean that we end up in a pattern of disrespecting ourselves and becoming disconnected from our needs because we're constantly ignoring our own needs in favor of avoiding discomfort in the short term. But the more we actually go after those things that fulfill us, the greater our sense of self-respect and with that self-trust. It seems like it's really normal that we want to avoid things that look like effort or are going to require energy. So how do we move through that? (laughs) This is the answer that you're going to hate. Oh, listeners are going to roll their eyes and feel free. Look, honestly, I roll my eyes at myself, especially when I'm trying to change my habits as well. So let's just all face it. It's not a great answer. We don't love it, but it's a fact. 
the way we move through it is by doing the thing. Okay, let me break it down because that's everyone's going to go, oh, of course, Beck, you know, of course, I just need to go for a walk. The thing that you need to do before that is don't make it bigger than it needs to be. If you make it bigger than it needs to be, you'll end up in a massive fight with the part of your brain that just wants easy and doesn't want anything that looks like effort. So instead, start with the bar low. You can decide that if you're going to hydrate a little more, one glass of water is better than none. And then one glass becomes two glasses the next day and three glasses the day after that. Some water is better than none. Some walking is better than none. Some reading is better than none. Some meditation is better than none. Whatever you're choosing, I want you to choose just one thing and then reframe the effort towards being able to care for yourself while you do that thing rather than keeping the effort perfectionistic because most people, especially teachers, are I don't think I've treated a teacher that wasn't perfectionistic. Honestly, teachers tend to be very caring people and incredibly intelligent people. And you put those things together and teachers can make amazing cognitive leaps. So they'll be like, yeah, okay, okay, here's the goal. Okay, we could drink some water, but also wouldn't it be great if we drank some water and went for a walk and did meditation and took a suite of vitamins at the same time? That would be great. I could do a spreadsheet for that. In fact, I could do a whole habit tracker and I could tick it off. And then the minute you do that and the habit tracker looks amazing because you made it on Canva and you tick off like three days, but then you miss the fourth day because the dog got sick and you had to take the dog to the vet and you missed some part of it. So you can't tick the box off. What happens is your brain then goes straight into self-criticism and self-punishment mode and you miss being able to celebrate the progress for what it is. As much as I can't stand the statement progress over perfection, I use it, I write it, it's in my books. The reason I can't stand it is because I'm also someone that loves a good streak of perfection. It just really satisfies my brain. I just like to see things done perfectly. If you're the same, I see you, I totally get it, but honestly, it's not helping us. So instead, I need you to celebrate the progress for what it is and however it looks like. Because what happens is the more small actions that lead to your progress, the more likely your brain is to be able to tolerate the tiny bits of discomfort rather than expecting yourself to leap into changing 10,000 habits at once. Focus on one thing, nail that, get the sense of achievement and the dopamine hits from that, and then watch as your comfort zone widens and your willpower grows. It's almost like with every action that we take consistently, we're building up this self-trust muscle that, oh, look, I did it. And that I did it again because normally it would be, I have all these big ideas. I have all the spreadsheet looks great. Laminate it on the fridge, even got a whiteboard marker with a little bit of Velcro. We're ready, but it doesn't happen. And so our brain gets used to that. We start big and go home. We'd never quite get there. Instead of moving towards this self-trust over time that what I say I'm going to do and what I do is aligned. And that's a big shift. It's a big shift and it's also an identity changer. If you do that enough, you change from someone that used to be a runner to someone who is a runner. 
You see the difference? See how that feels different? If someone decides that they're going to meditate and they meditate for three days and then miss the fourth day, they decide that they failed. If someone decides they're going to meditate when they can for just two minutes instead of half an hour and they do it five days out of seven, but not every single day, but they do that five days for 26 weeks, 52 weeks, your identity changes because you said you were going to meditate and you do meditate. It's not perfect, but you do. You've become a meditator. And so maybe this is why change can be so hard for us because at one level it is a shift in identity. And so if our identity is based around caring for others, being available for others, always being there for others, to take steps towards being there for ourselves, so like who am I to take care of myself when I'm used to being there for others and noticing that discomfort and noticing that as you move forward, as you trust yourself more, it's possible to be a fantastic carer and care for ourselves. The two things can be true at once. Yeah, I really love that because I don't know whether this is still true or whether it was only true for the subset of teachers that I treated, but I noticed that there was a really common mindset of almost like a badge of honor that they were too busy to care for themselves and that Sometimes what happens is depending on, I guess, your staff room and the people that you spend most time with at school and maybe even those teachers who have become your friends outside of school, when you're all too busy to care for yourself, it becomes this kind of collective unconscious where you're spending time with people that aren't taking care of themselves because it's too much and they've got too much on their plate too. So it almost gives you permission to stay in that uh, cycle of not caring for yourself as well. And then it can be a challenge, a cognitive challenge to think, well, I want to do something differently because you can almost feel like you're leaving your community behind. Like if you're going to start making small changes to your lifestyle and prioritizing your health or your fitness or your mental health in some way, it can seem like you're leaving people behind. And especially if you care for those people very deeply. So I think it's just important to note that sometimes the people that we spend time with can also influence where we're at and how much we believe in our capacity for change. You can make changes even if the people around you are not making changes. It doesn't mean that you're trying to be better than them. It doesn't mean that you're trying to, you know, kind of step up to a level that they're not available for. It simply just means that you're acknowledging that you can't continue to do the work that is so deeply important to you unless you fill up your giving tanks. There is only rust at the bottom of that giving tank. That's all there is. It's not going to fill up unless you actually take responsibility for filling it up. And yes, that concept drives me crazy and annoys the crap out of me. Okay. Let's be honest. I really wish that I didn't have to put effort into looking after myself, like hard eye roll. I've got shit to do. I don't need to be sitting around looking after my mental and my physical health. But if I don't, who's going to do it for me? No one. Just super disappointing. But that's the fact. Yes. And it is so frustrating at times because we know what we need to do and yet we don't do it. And then we get frustrated. But how we can bridge this gap is through these tiny habits, is through noticing the discomfort. First, noticing the discomfort in ourselves that, oh, this feels uncomfortable caring for myself. Oh, 
And then also noticing that social level in our school systems, like, oh, it feels uncomfortable because I'm going against the norm here. I'm swimming against the tide. I feel like I'm betraying my community by leaving on time and not doing the right thing. And then we can feel guilty and excuses and all of these things. And that's why I think it's so important to seek support outside of our systems so you can have some people that are cheering you on, that know where you want to go and helping you in that process. So how important do you think support is when we're making change? I do think it's really important. I think there's parts of the path that you can only go when you've got someone walking alongside you. And I do think there's also parts of the path that you'll have to go alone. When it comes to making change, if people are making similar changes, it can be incredibly helpful to buddy up because it's likely that they'll also experience the same resistance and you can help each other through. What I am going to say, though, is be very mindful that you're not buddied up with someone who doesn't tolerate any resistance and therefore crumbles at the first sight of the goal being hard. Because what that can do is it, it can derail you as well. So when you're in a change community, make sure that you connect with people that are just as determined to make the change as you, rather than being pulled backwards into your old habits by people that aren't ready to get there yet. And that is so beautiful to give yourself permission to be supported because that's also another challenge that we face as educators that I'm much more comfortable to support others than be supported. So once we give ourselves permission to be supported and we're showing up in new ways over time, then we're giving permission to other people in our school to do things differently because they've seen our example and then we can create change by these tiny, tiny habits. I think that one of the most powerful things that you can do, especially as a teacher, especially as a teacher who leans towards perfectionism, is to learn to accept when something is good enough. You know, if you can do something to a level that is good enough, you leave your giving tanks with at least a baseline level of energy left in them rather than pushing yourself to the point of perfection and therefore burnout. So often trying to achieve perfection across all areas of work and life means that you're pushing yourself beyond what you have available to give because perfection is impossible. So I would really encourage listeners to stop and just consider, is it okay if that handout is black and white? Does it really need to be in color? Do you really need to sit there and make sure that the font is perfect and consistent with the previous worksheets that you've done? Once you are able to step into a place of this is good enough, it will do the job it needs to do, you free yourself up then to have some energy left over for the changes that you're trying to make. Oh, Beck, you have given us so much to think about and given us a new lens to look at change and habits that's much more realistic and also much deeper because we are talking about big things here, identity, self-trust, resistance, all of these things that don't seem to pop up at this time of year. Normally, it's just five easy steps, eight weeks, new life, here you go, join now. So it's wonderful to have this nuanced conversation. So to wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for doing that? Sure. I am inspired by? Right now? I'm inspired by I'm inspired by 2022. I have stepped into a realm of creativity, 
a level of productivity and a level of self-compassion that I didn't know was possible for me all at once. And I'm inspired by the fact that I've been able to get to the end of this year and go, I've done enough. This state of being able to sit comfortably in enough is new for me. And I've practiced for a very long time to arrive here consistently. So I'm inspired by that. There's there's a lot to, to be said for being able to look at yourself and go, you're doing good. Oh, gosh, I feel so hopeful hearing that, Beck. Uh, when life feels hard. When life feels hard, it's okay to stop. Uh, we nearly lost one of my dogs on the weekend. <clears throat> she deteriorated very quickly and ended up in a critical condition. And there was a moment where I was crying and actually said to my wife, I don't think I have the energy to cope with this. This feels too big. And my response to that was to sit with her and to sit in the feeling and allow the feeling to be big. When life feels hard, it's okay to be in it. And I think to also remember that it passes. An underrated skill is? Uh, sitting with discomfort, a thousand percent. The people who can sit with discomfort are the people that can do anything they want to do, honestly. The capacity to be able to feel your feelings and not numb out to them and then go and do the thing that you really want to do is such an underrated skill. We just, we, and, and generally we only see it in people like David Goggins, you know, that Navy SEAL guy. Like we look at people doing massive things and go, well, that's the only time it counts. Bullshit. The time it counts is when you gave yourself a glass of water. Thanks very much. Like the time it counts is when you wanted to have a fourth cup of coffee, but instead you drank some water. That's when it counts. And I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to how the path unfolds and how I can continue to stop forcing and instead flowing with it. I'm looking forward to allowing the path to unfold without having to control every aspect of how it unfolds. Beck, thank you so much for the work you do in the world, for sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Every time I read your books, I just feel like it's a warm hug and a let's go. Come on, you can do this. This is possible that you're blazing a trail for us to follow. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest, a return guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me, Meg. It's been a real pleasure. This conversation has inspired you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function and relate better. To learn more about today's guests and the incredible work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for more information and ways to connect. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated with you to keep the conversation going. To learn more about ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.